Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you are listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, I have a really fun guest. We're going to be talking about taste and flavor and how to really discover and savor flavors and savor life. Our guest this week is Mandy Naglich. She is an advanced Cicerone. And if you don't know what that is, I also had to look it up. That means she's like a super duper beer expert. Um, she's also a national homebrew competition gold medalist, a drinks educator, and a writer. And most exciting with her recent news is she's also the author of the new book, How to Taste, A Guide to Discovering Flavor and Savoring Life. Mandy lives, writes, and brews in New York City, but she documents her drinks um, and adventures around the world at Drinks with Mandy on social media. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Mandy. It's great to meet you. Yeah, it's so exciting to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, why don't we start with the beginning? Like, how did you get excited about taste and flavor as, as a subject matter? Yeah, I um, started my flavor journey as a home brewer where I used to get obsessed with recreating the exact beers that I would have out at beer bars and things like that. And in 2016, I won the national a gold medal at the National Homebrew Competition. And because I can, kind of came out of nowhere, uh, a bunch of people contacted me. That's the Cicerone organization got in touch with me. Uh, Vine Pair got in touch with me about writing my homebrew column. And then I really started diving into the science of flavor and taste. It's amazing. So tell us a little bit more, you know, I don't know how to even begin with home brewing. <laughs> how, how hard is it to break into this field? I mean, it sounds like you need to have a, a good understanding of some of the science to be able to do this well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, fermentation science is the center of um, home brewing. You know, when you, when you're making beer at home, you have this huge vat of um, grains and things that you're boiling, but really all of this all the flavors coming in the refrigerator where you're fermenting afterward. So um, that's definitely harnessing all of my yeast and learning what flavors they express were uh, essential to winning those competitions. And um, something that a lot of people don't know about brewing. It seems like, oh, when you have the fire out and you're stirring your mash tun, that's where the flavor is. But really, it's all happening in fermentation. Nice, nice, nice. And so when you ferment things, are you, you know, we have a lot of episodes on fermentation. I love fermentation as a, as a microbial process. We've, we've um, spoken with fermenters like Julia Skinner and Sandor Katz on the show. Um, Chris, Kristen Schoke, like they're doing amazing stuff with lactic acid fermentation. Um, and we've even spoken to some different master blenders, but I think you're our first, you know, person that really understands um, the homebrew element. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about these yeasts. Like, are there different commercial types of yeast or do you use things from the environment? Like how do you, how do you get those special flavors going? Yeah, I'll definitely shout out Julia Skinner too. I love her book <laughs> and I love your guys' episode. Um, I listened to it. Uh, but yes, um, they're definitely, it's really different than wine where you're kind of using the yeast that's on the skin of grapes and beer. You're mm -hmm. selecting your yeast and pitching it into your mash. So um, you have things like, German ale yeast, which express a lot of uh, banana and clove flavors. Mm -hmm. And then American ale yeast is very clean, if any kind of flavor. It's just a tiny bit of green apple. And Americans are all about adding hops and malts for their flavors. So kind of knowing which yeast to select is the beginning of flavoring beer. And um, getting in touch with those different yeast expressions was something that really got me studying what the actual compounds were from fermentation. And then I realized the same compounds that make German ales delicious are the compounds in cheeses that make them really nutty and buttery oh, and nice. things like that. 
-hmm. And then from there, yeah, same thing. It's rum, anything barrel-aged and beers taste the same as your barrel-aged whiskeys. And I realized all this tasting knowledge I know doesn't just apply to like my specialty. It's across everything and everyone can learn the same way that I did. That's amazing. So that's a perfect tie-in to your book because your book uh-huh. is about, you know, not just about beer, it's about everything about how do we go about tasting and tell us a little bit about the book and what led you to write this. Yeah. So it started with that when I, uh, one of my good friends, Olivia, she's in the cheese space and she was like, she's a certified cheese professional, professional has done all the sensory tests, like really top notch palate. And she said, Oh, it's so cool that you're an advanced sister. And I could never do that. I was like, I actually think you could. I think once we kind of train our skills this way, you could do it, but there's no crossover book, right? About like, how does cheese and beer cross into each other? Or how does rum and chocolate cross into each other? Um, so I really wanted to write something that was just about how do you get in touch with your senses? How do you start breaking down flavor, both in your vocabulary that you can speak out loud and your sensory memory? And then 288 pages came from it. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, okay. So do you have any simple tips? Like, let's just say the listeners are going to be tuning in maybe around mealtime because this episode, these, these episodes always make people hungry, right? <laughs> let's imagine, let's imagine that we're sitting down um, for a meal and they're listening mm-hmm. to this episode. Like, do you have any simple steps just to help guide them on how to start to better appreciate the flavor of what's on their plate or in their, in their cup? Yeah, something that's a really simple kind of brain exercise is to get you tuned into what you're tasting is doing comparisons. So if you're eating something, um, I was just talking earlier today about putting golden raisins on salad and you taste that raisin, you know, if you just take a second and compare, well, how does this taste to, you know, a, a normal purple raisin and how is it, what is it adding to my salad? Just two seconds kind of to make that neural connection in your brain. The next time you taste a purple raisin, you'll either think of that comparison you came up with or same thing the next time you taste a golden raisin, all of those things are right at your sensory fingertips. And that's actually a way that expands your brain very quickly. One of the really cool studies that are in the book, there's several of these, but people looking at the brains of people who start studying wine and you can see that olfactory bulb in your actual brain expand in a matter of six weeks, which when you think of our brains changing over the you know course of our life, that is extremely rapid. Scientists are just shocked at how malleable that area is. And it's really connecting all those sensory inputs to our brains and you know, keeping it healthy and building your memory. I like that's the kind of exercise I would like to do. <laughs> little yeah. brain, brain building through flavor and taste. <laughs> yeah, you know, every now and then I'm forced to taste two chocolates next to each other to do a comparative tasting. So, you know, hard work for sure. That's great. I mean, in a, in a weird way, I see almost parallels with the tasting experience you're describing with um, forest, like a hike through the forest versus forest bathing. I know mm-hmm. they sound very different, but I'll, I'll explain the link. I think with like a hike, you're kind of walking and you're not necessarily paying a lot of attention to your surroundings, whereas forest bathing is you're walking or sitting in the forest, but there's intentionality to like observe and notice things. And it mm-hmm. sounds a little bit like the sensory experience is the same. We all eat, but mm-hmm. are we eating with intention? Are we eating in a way that really looks at smells, you know, captures all those senses? And that's, yeah, it is funny how we kind of, yeah. yeah. And speaking of forest bathing, I mean, I even have a section in the book where I talk about, I go up to Vermont a lot in the summers and their mm-hmm. forests have a very specific smell to them, you know, and I was in for the book, I went to Portland to do some cheese research. 
And I opened my windows while I was driving through the forest and I immediately noticed like, oh, the forest smells so different. But I think <gasps> if I wasn't tapped into my senses and constantly thinking, oh, what's my environment smell like? Uh, what sensory inputs are coming in? You know, you wouldn't notice these little nuances that just make your life a lot richer and more interesting when you're able to say, oh, this doesn't smell like birch here. It smells like different trees, that kind of stuff. It's amazing. Well, another topic that you get into in the book is how our senses are also connected to our health. How does that all come together? Yeah, I think that was one of the parts that actually wasn't in my original book proposal. But the more I talk to taste and smell researchers, the more it's so important to them. One of the earliest signs, or really what they say is the earliest sign of dementia, is starting to lose your sense of smell just because all of our olfactory receptors are so closely tied to that memory portion of our brain. But we don't have a test to really say, oh, am I still smelling things as intensely? There's no, no one's paying attention to their sense of smell enough to have those really early onset where we could catch it and start, you know, helping work against the effects of things like dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, so I really wanted to point that out to people. One, you know, stay vigilant, <laughs> especially if you have people who are older in your life and you want to make sure we're still smelling and tasting everything. And then the other is there are scientists, it's not totally proven yet. There's a lot of studies going on, but um, that think the stronger those areas of your brain are, the more you practice, the longer you'll keep your memory and the healthier your mental functions will be for longer. Um, and like I said, you can see your brain change so quickly. I mean, that has to be, you know, something going on when you're paying attention to these senses of taste and smell and just something that people don't really notice. Yeah. I think, I think the science of smell and taste is, is an interesting field because there are so many, you know, complex neural networks involved, mm -hmm. um, both, you know, throughout the oral cavity, but also in the nose and, um, I think there is more and more research that's going to be done on this, especially because of during the COVID pandemic, when people right. lost, you know, temporarily lost, many people temporarily lost a sense of smell as a result of the virus. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting space. There's so many different confounding variables when it comes to aging and dementia. Oral health mm -hmm. has also been linked to that. Like if you have right. poor dental hygiene, that can also lead to a propensity for those things. So it just... I guess what you would call multifactorial, <laughs> right? right? As is everything in health, it's all it's always so complex. But you know, it is it is interesting though how our how our sense of of just practicing these things can kind of bring more awareness. And you know, one thing about flavor and taste that's already always stuck with me is this connection to memory, right? Mm -hmm. We all have comfort foods. And what are the things that comfort us about those comfort foods? For me, it's like memories of childhood or happy times with friends or family. Um, mm -hmm. What did you learn as you were working on the book around memory and, you know, and, and connections to smells and flavors? Yeah, I think something that's really interesting, you know, you can hear a favorite song too and sometimes feel these like triggered memories. Like I definitely have road trip songs I've heard where, you know, you, you remember being in the, the car with your friends just from hearing a song. But those are really these tied to these like physical, more space and time memories, whereas sense and taste, like you said, are really these emotional memories. Sometimes you can't even put your finger on the exact moment. Like why does, you know, having this specific cinnamon tea make you feel warm and happy? But it's just that those flavors are tied to many happy memories that you have. So it's more of this emotional memory than always being a sense of place and time. 
But it's they also there are those very strong you know sensory memories that they call like the Proustian memory, um, the Proustian effect of you take a, a bite of something and then all of a sudden you're seven again. You're in the kitchen. Your mom's handing you the candy and you're like, I haven't tasted this candy in 17 years, but I have this instant like you know time travel kind of memory that's um, attached to those. And that really is more of a, a sense of smell, even though it seems like it's coming from our taste buds. It's really those olfactory receptors have just a fast track right into your memory. Um, your nose is very close to your olfactory bulb. Whereas things like your taste buds, the message is going all the way from your palate up through your ear and then into your brain. It's a much slower kind of message movement than scent. It's, you know, on the fast track. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, so when you, when you taste something, we have a couple of different things happening, right? You have smell, you have mm -hmm. flavor, but then you have something called mouthfeel. Like, what can you tell us about mouthfeel? Like, what does that all entail? And how does that tie into this process? Yeah, and it's something so funny because a lot of people hate that word mouthfeel. They're like, oh, come on, it's texture, it's whatever. But something that's amazing is our teeth can actually sense grit that is about a tenth of the size of a grain of sand. So we're talking, if you're looking at pudding and it has grit that size, you cannot see it. You know, that's not the texture. It's really your mouth is the only thing that can feel that. Um, so that's mouthfeel, you know, what does it feel, what is the feeling in your mouth, whether it's the bubbles of carbonation, the grit or crunchiness of something, um, that's your mouthfeel. And yeah, it's, a, you know, a whole other sensor that's on our tongue that we don't really think of. We think of our taste buds, but also there's a ton of um, touch receptors on your tongue that are getting the heat of spiciness. That's actually a feeling of pain. The cooling of menthol is another touch sensation. And then of course, all the grittiness, um, any kind of warmth, you know, temperature of the food, all of those are coming through totally different receptors. So there's no tasting in a vacuum, you know, all of your senses are really tying into what we're, we're eating and drinking. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, how sometimes mouthfeel can lead to this, you know, bliss point, which, you know, mm -hmm. has been a term used a lot in, in industrial food production, you know, this is why we can't just have one potato chip because <laughs> they have optimized the magical you know, combination of that kind of crunch and salt mm -hmm. and the feel of how it, you know, there's nothing worse than like a stale chip, right? Cause it's soggy. It's just not mm -hmm. the same. You don't have that same mouth, you know, that same kind of bliss with it. Well, and that but, developed out of um, fresh food, like, you know, it's very a carrot mm -hmm. that is very fresh will snap because it's cell walls are just puffed up with all the water of it being fresh yeah. and, um, so that, you know, it's same thing if you like bite a carrot and it's kind of like mushy and you're like, mm -hmm. you know, no, thank you. That's like yeah. a natural response. And then, yeah, food, food engineers just really learned how to uh, use it <laughs> to the best. Yeah. How to make us eat a million potato yeah. chips, I guess. Well, another thing that's interesting is how, how our interpretation of the senses also can lead to signals of disgust. Right. I'm thinking in particular of slimy foods. I was recently in Japan and there were some things like I just have a really hard time eating things like natto still. Like mm -hmm. I really want to. I really yeah. want, this is a fermented kind of soybean and it looks like white snot hanging off of these little beans. It's, it's, and it yeah. feels like snot. You know, it's just mm -hmm. there's so many. And I'm like, I know this is healthy for me. And I'm like, this is good. This is good for me. I have this mantra in my head, but I just yeah. can't do it. <laughs> so, so, um. yeah. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that's like the number one thing that's really hard to overcome, um, you know, with your senses is if anything's ever made you sick, it's just a biological response for us to say that oyster made me sick. Like no matter how bad you want to like an oyster, like it's not, it's not yeah. going to happen. And may, it, like you said, if 
that reminds you specifically of something like being sick or snot, like it's really hard to get over. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do talk to a researcher and one of the best times to get over it is when you're on vacation. So like you said, if you're in Japan, you gave it the, the best shot because you I just want to be. I gave it the best be... shot and I still failed. So I think. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be totally out of your sensory environment and try to reintroduce something that might, you know, trigger those disgust responses. But you can't yeah. always win with our biology. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, um, what are some of the other things as you were researching for this book? Were there any kind of things that you learned about in the process of research that surprised you or like, you know, anything that was like, whoa, that's really cool. I didn't realize that, that you came across. Yeah. I think it was really all of the elements around us and how much they affect what, not only what we're tasting, but our memory of what we're tasting. So like we, I just said, the, uh, our taste signals travel through our inner ear and knowing that now, of course, all the music and sound around us affects what we taste. Right. So even if you're in a very chic, amazing wine bar, it might not be the best environment to order a very, very expensive nuanced wine because just all of that sound is putting pressure on those taste signals and it's just blunting them a little bit. Um, If you're tasting a really expensive wine, you want to be quiet, you know, maybe a little classical music in the background just to not make it awkward, but any other senses that are kind of bombarding you from the outside are really going to affect what you're tasting um, in the moment and then also how you remember it. So it's not just, it's not just about setting the mood, right? Mm -hmm. With your like, like it really does affect the flavor, like the way you interpret those flavors. That's, that's fascinating. Right. And it's the reason that have you ever like had an amazing bottle of wine? Maybe you were like in Tuscany or something or on vacation (laughs) and you come back and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this restaurant has that. We have to get it. And, And then you're just like a little bit disappointed because you're like, oh, it's, not quite as I remember it. And um, one of the researchers I talked to, he had such a good point. He was like, when you go on vacation, go to the amazing winery, but bring home a bottle of one of the wines you never tasted. And so Mm. when you come home, it's still a new experience. You're tying it back to that sensory memory, but there's nothing to like compare it to and be disappointed. You're just like, oh, our vacation was so great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I was like, that's such a good point. So that's always, now when I'm doing my souvenir shopping, I'm always like, okay, just in Bermuda. And I was like, I'm bringing home a rum that I didn't get to taste while I was here. I picked it up to bring home. So it's amazing. Well, this this talk of music and flavor reminds me, there was a piece just out recently in the New York times, um, about a winemaker in Oregon and she has a condition it's called, um, synesthesia. synesthesia. Mm -hmm. Synesthesia. Yeah. Yeah. And how she uses that to really blend her her different grapes to create these incredible wines and mm-hmm. you know I ha- I hadn't thought about you know winemaking in that form of artwork of of kind of music and almost like painting you're pulling together these masterpieces through interpretation but mm-hmm. yeah it, it, that's kind of promising to me that we all can have a little bit of influence from sound when it comes to our flavor Totally. And I mean, one of the um, people I talked to is a chocolate expert, a chocolate judge in the book. And she runs this amazing program called Taste with Color. And she basically, Mm. because it's so hard sometimes to tie like a word to what you're tasting, she just says, okay, just imagine what color does this taste like to you? And she kind of has people draw out or paint out with watercolors, just the colors Mm -hmm. they're kind of feeling. And um, she did this one workshop where everyone painted and then she showed the chocolate bar that they were painting and like all of their colors like perfectly matched the label of the bar. And so she was like, no way. I have, yeah. She was like, I have to talk to this company. And they were like, oh yeah, we try to make our labels reflect 
like how we think it tastes. And she was like, well, you're doing a good job. It was crazy. So <laughs> I have that picture. I'll have to send you the link because yeah, she showed me, she framed all of them with like the chocolate bar in the middle. And bar. I was like, wow. Yeah. So it's it, our senses really are. I can see like how you could, yeah, blend wines to make them seem like a color you're imagining or something like that. All of the multi-sensory kind of cross cross modal inputs. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, I want to go back to this this other certification you have of being a Cicerone because I think this is this is really cool. Like, what does it take to achieve that level of of certification in beer tasting? Like, what is that process like? Yeah, it's a lot of blind tasting. So if you've ever seen the Psalm movies, it's very it's very similar. There's 113 mm -hmm. styles of beer that we have to be able to taste and call out um, blind. And then they also do something which I've realized now. I also have my certification for spirits now in WSET, and I'm a certified um, uh, cider professional. <laughs> Remember wow. <that> <laughs> um, But what I've realized is Cicerone really focuses on being able to taste specific compounds. So they do what like an off flavor panel where they'll spike the beers with different compounds and we need to be able to taste them and then describe what went wrong in the brewing process. So something like diacetyl, which is this really strong buttery flavor or DMS, which is this kind of like cooked corn flavor. So if you taste DMS in a sample, you can say, okay, they either didn't boil rapidly enough or they didn't let their fermentation blow off. And now all the sulfur is in the beer. Um, and I think that really set me up to kind of get obsessed with this tasting thing. Cause now when I taste sulfur compounds and anything, sour cream and onion chips, I'm like, I can totally tell exactly what compound they use to give it this onion flavor. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's very focused on those like minute sensory differences, but then we also really need to know the entire brewing process, what can go right, what can go wrong in it, um, which home brewing obviously helps with. <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, yeah. it sounds almost like, you know, in my, in my research lab, we use a tool called high performance liquid chromatography, which is all about detection of small molecules. And it's like, you're like mm -hmm. a walking HPLC like to be able to detect these different molecules. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's also humans are much cheaper. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, when I was getting certified as a taster, I worked with this company, Aroxa, who does quality panels and basically you know, you can only afford to use gas spectrometry so often. Um, if yeah. you're, but you can afford to have a panel of seven people taste it once a week and make sure you're on mark. And they're they're almost in some ways better than uh, the machines just because you can see those molecules come across from the machine, right? And it'll say isovaleric mm -hmm. acid, but it might not be that a human can actually smell that amount. It's, it's always hard to know what the threshold is in the mix of molecules. So a machine can tell you the numbers, but a person can tell you what they what people can actually sense. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, I have I have a specific beer question because this is something yeah. I experienced a few years ago in Belgium. I like went on one of these um, chocolate and beer walking tours in in Brussels. So um, I'm like, I was there for a grant review panel. I had time to go. I was like, chocolate and beer, sign me up. <laughs> and so I was introduced to the Trappist beers. And our guide was like, this is the best beer in the world. It's the most important, the most special. And I'm like, well, maybe everyone says this about every beer, you know, for their country. <laughs> but I'm wondering, like, is that really a special beer? I'm just asking for myself. I don't know if the audience has ever had Trappist beer or not, but I, I need to know. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming it was Westfaletter and 12 that you were drinking. Maybe that sounds um, right. It was a very yeah. long word. <laughs> it, was, it came from a monastery. <laughs> yeah, they were voted. They were voted. Um, I forget. It was somewhere kind of like um, not really beer focused. I don't remember if it was USA Today or CNN. One of those bigger, you know, not really reporting on beer claims them the best in the world a couple years ago. And um, 
the beer is so good that everyone's like, sure, I agree. It's also very rare. So it just feels special. Again, going back to tasting, you know, this is an external environment thing. It feels so special that you have a bottle that you're like, I believe this is the, this is going to taste like the best beer in the world. Um, I love Westwater and I've been there several times, but uh, yeah, I, I would say close to the best beer in the world, but yeah, definitely you were having a special experience. The monks only make so much, you know, they have a lot yeah. going on. So, and they won't, they won't make more than they need to to sustain the Abbey. So it really is a rare, special experience. And especially with okay. chocolate, all those dark yeah, fruit like, okay, flavors so in I that beer. A good job in selecting my tour. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the special thing about being in Belgium. The, the monks are around right. brewing. Yeah. That's amazing that I got to taste this incredible beer. I think if I were to go back, and I think I am going back because I'm on the same service panel for this grant review <laughs> work there. It's, it's a good thing to do while, I, while I'm visiting Belgium. Um, mm -hmm. But let's say I get to go back and I get to have uh, a taste of this Trappist beer, of this rare monk's beer. Can you teach me how to more fully appreciate it so I don't look like such the novice? Like, how, what do I do with my mouth to really capture all these different flavors? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the whole chapter four, which is the longest chapter in the book, is totally de dedicated to my tasting method, which I developed working with, you know, not just my beer tasting experience, um, olive oil tasters, honey tasters, uh, cheese tasters, everyone really put input in. Um, so there's seven S's because I wanted it to be catchy. Um, so if you're going to see what you're tasting first, you know, just take it in visually. I think sometimes we kind of skip over that, you know, you're like, ready to have your drink of whatever it is. And something that's so special with beer is it's one of the only beverages that can hold that really cool head on top of it because of its protein structure. So I, I always say a good pour of beer, you got to take a minute just to see it, just to admire it. Um, same thing with checking your setting or setting the thing up yourself. So, you know, I outline all these things. You can check the temperature of the room, what you're seeing around you. If you're tasting on the streets of Brussels, um, you know, what is the, the sound around you? What do the streets of Brussels smell like that might be affecting what you taste? Just, you know, note it really quickly. And then you get into sniffing. And I have, I think, seven or eight different sniffs. So we won't go through all of them now. But you really, what it's doing is introducing the, the aroma of the beer to you really slowly so you can take in how it changes. Um, what our noses really are, are difference detectors. So you, if they want your nose wants to get used to your surrounding smell very quickly so they can smell if any threat is coming in. You know, your olfactory bulb can sense any threat that might be coming in. So if you just dive your nose right into the beer, you'll go blind to it pretty quickly because that's the point of a nose. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, so, like I know with wine, I kind of swirl it and I stick mm -hmm. my nose in, you know, I don't know if I'm even doing that correctly either. <laughs> I try and take in a deep breath, you know, before I taste it. Yeah. Is there a similar technique for beer? I mean, you don't want to stick your nose in the foam, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And wine and beer would do the exact same technique. So the tasting method is going to be relevant to anything, including cheese, including, yeah, okay. oysters. I just did an oyster tasting hmm. the other day. Um, so yeah, basically what you're doing is just slowly introducing scent. So like doing the first step is like a long sniff, right? From far away. Just can you smell anything? Sometimes when something okay. comes to your table, you know, you can smell something right away. Like you can smell a little bit of cocoa powder from the chocolate or something like that. So there's all these steps to slowly introduce, you know, short sniffs, long sniffs, all different things. Like you said, swirling. And then there's one that I think a lot of people haven't heard of, but a lot of tasting professionals have, which is the retronasal sniff. And basically, it's using the back of your nose to smell. Anything coming in your nose is um, orthonasal, anything coming in the front. But you have all these receptors up the back of your throat and your nose that is your retronasal receptors. 
So it teaches you how to kind of plug your nose, take a sip and swallow in a way that really pushes the aroma up the back of your nose. Ah. And it's very eye-opening. Yeah. People are always shocked. I just at my book party had a, everyone do it together. Um, Cause it's like, if you're playing a piano, right. And you're playing the scales in the same order over and over, it sounds the same. But if you play that scale backward, it's actually all the same notes, but it just obviously sounds totally different. And it's the yeah. same thing. This it's going backward up the back of the throat. Um, and then there's three different sip tastes. You're doing what we always talked about mouthfeel, your match taste and your aftertaste taste, um, which mm. is your sip sample step. And then there's a swirl. You don't want to swirl your beer as much as wine just because you'll swirl out all the carbonation, which is a bummer. So the last step is giving it a really good swirl just to get that last aroma out, you know, when you're about to finish it. And then your sit and synthesize step, which is the other one I think everyone skips, is just take two seconds when you're on your tour to say more than like, oh, this beer is special and say, oh, what did everybody taste? What am I going to remember about this? And that's really giving your brain that chance to cement the sensory memory, connect what you're saying verbally to that sensory experience you just had, because you can drink a great wine or beer and say, oh, that was great and move on. And all your brain's not connecting to anything, the word great to, you know, this beer. So if you say, oh, I mean, it's something like a West letter and oh, that was like really deep syrupy figs and that um, caramel mm -hmm. flavor and the carbonation all came together to really make it a wonderful match for this chocolate. Um, it's just creating a different memory and taking a little second to appreciate appreciate what the monks just gave you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that was well, a lot of steps, but that's a the lot full. Of steps, but I think I can do that. It's about smelling deeply. I have to make sure I don't choke while trying to do the back. Yeah. <laughs> the I, back I really like outline it in the book. Yeah. In chapter four, okay. it's a little choreography, but yeah. worth it. Um, um, yeah. And the sit and synthesize is such a natural thing when you're all sitting around tasting something to talk about what you, what you sensed and you're right. It's like getting that time to hear what others found. And then it makes you think, did I also taste fig? Like what? It, yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. Or to your point, like about memories earlier, someone might say, oh, this reminded me of the last mm -hmm. time I landed in the Belgian airport or something. And you get to kind of, kind of learn something about someone else who's there with you. Yeah. So it's, it's not just all about the tasting. It's also just making, you know, I, the um, sub headline is uh, discovering flavor and savoring life. So it's also just a moment yeah. to make your life a little richer and have a, a good nicer. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think the pairings play into that as well. So, okay, going back to chocolate and beer pairings as we did on uh -huh. this tour, like, you know, how, how do, how do folks select what are the things that are best to pair together. I mean, even at restaurants, you have, we suggest this wine with the fish or this wine with the steak. Like, how do those pairings come about? Like, what's the rationale behind these pairings? Yeah, there's four basic food interactions that you're looking at in pairing. You're looking at a cut interaction, contrast interaction, complements, and then create, which is kind of the most esoteric of all of them. But basically you're looking for, if you have a really fatty, heavy dish, you know, you kind of want a wine that might be brighter and or very tannic to cut through all of that, you know, make everything a little bit lighter. Um, contrast, same thing. Um, if you have something that's all vanilla flavors, you might want something that has a little bit of fruit in it just to add some contrast, you know, maybe not something super barrel heavy and vanilla forward. Compliments, very, I would say the obvious one. Um, if you have, you know, a delicious berry tart and you want to get a really jammy wine to go with it and just make it a berry extravaganza, that's that interaction. And then the last one, create, is kind of um, really the chef or the psalm or whoever's, you know, helping you pair. Uh, 
making something they're trying to make two things come together to make something else. So a really good example we use in beer is like a really delicious sharp cheddar cheese and a really malt bready forward German mm. lager. When you eat them together, maybe it tastes like a grilled cheese. Maybe it's giving you that memory of that really toasty bread, that really melty cheese coming together um, and creating something new. So that can be, you know, yeah, creating a memory that they're trying to recreate, um, telling you a little bit about place. That's a, a great um, way when people say you have a taste of place or, you know, things that grow together, yeah. go together. Um, Belgian chocolate, Belgian beer, yeah. creating a little sample of Belgium for you. Yeah. I mean, when I think about some of my travels, some of my favorite memories are definitely tied to food. Another one that's like a prominent pairing that I haven't really tried to replicate elsewhere because it just seems wrong is um, on a trip to the Isle of Skye in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan of whiskeys. And we went to the Talisker Distillery, which is a very peaty whiskey, right? Mm -hmm. And the distillery is located on this beautiful bay and they had just up the hill from the distillery, there was like an oyster shack where they would uh -huh. get oysters from this bay. And so, of course, we bought a bottle at the distillery after a tour and we're eating oysters and then shooting, you know, whiskey in our oyster shells. And I like, this is the most amazing experience ever. It was a beautiful view. But I think that if I were to try and replicate that anywhere else, it's just you don't have all the quite the right elements of place and flavor of those specific oysters. Um, well yeah. Yeah. And something really cool about oysters, you know, you hear about like tewa in wines, but there's also mewa, which is any of your shellfish and things. Oh. Oysters, they don't have blood. They use actually the water around them for their circulatory system to mm -hmm. kind of move their nutrients around. So they're literally absorbing the flavor of that water their entire oh. lives. So to your point, you're never going to have an oyster that tastes exactly like that day again, um, which is a cool little thing when you're eating oysters. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's a fun, but also sad. I'm like, oh, I have to go all the way there <laughs> to experience that. Well, I'm sure, I don't know about that specific bay, but like if you want a Kamamoto oyster, they'll ship them around the world. You just have to pay for them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so what's the, I mean, you've, you've had a lot of experience tasting a lot of different foods and drinks. Mm -hmm. Like what are some of the more perhaps exotic things that you've tried that are not really available mainstream or perhaps are just not as common in America? Yeah. One of my, I was actually quite a picky eater growing up. Um, but one of my kind of eye opening things, I worked at this restaurant where if you're working there, you have to taste the whole menu. You have to know what it tastes like. And, mm -hmm. um, it was a game restaurant. So rattlesnake nachos were, um, on the Ooh. menu. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I was like a little afraid and then they were delicious. I mean, the texture, it's almost like a little bit like a really overcooked shrimp, like that almost like bouncing back, but tasted like yeah. chicken. It was just like a totally different experience. And I was afraid to eat them, but then they were delicious. I'm going out on the floor, suggesting them to everyone. Um, so <laughs> that was definitely like an eye opening one that I'll, I'll always remember. I also had kangaroo when I was in Australia and I love the kangaroos, but oh my gosh, we grilled some kangaroo and it was like one of the most delicious things I've ever wow. had. <laughs> so if I can separate the adorable things bouncing around. Um, that that's another one. And then there's a, a moment I wrote about in the book. Um, I love like sushi and omakase and stuff. I'm very lucky to live in New York where we can go to that. And uh, we asked the chef, we're like, can you give us anything I've never tasted? I've had a lot of omakase, you know, is there anything here? And he gave us crab brain. And I wouldn't say it's I, something I would repeat, um, but like, I will never forget tasting it. It was, he was totally right. It's something I've never tasted before. It tasted like 
kind of like crunched up walnut shells with like a little bit of like a greenness to it. And it was just like a really interesting texture. And I write about how like, that's totally part of my flavor vocabulary now. I know what it tastes like. If I see crab brain somewhere, I know what it is and I'm happy I tasted it, but maybe not again. <laughs> and so, okay, I have to ask this, was the crab brain, was it, was it cooked or it's raw? It's like a raw sushi thing. Like, yeah, um, it was, it was raw. I really raw. Um, yeah. But they make it into kind of like a, I'm trying to think of an appetizing way to say this. I was going to say paste, but like a, a mousse maybe. Um, like they okay. really whip it up and stuff. So it's still over rice. So you still get the texture of rice in there and everything. Um, uh, nice. But a delicacy in certain parts of Asia. Yeah, so, parts um, of, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I had some raw shrimp on my trip in Japan, which that was really kind of terrifying for me because I was convinced I was going to get sick uh -huh. after. I was fine. And I was like, okay, I did it. I don't think I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> I did it once. <laughs> That's one of my favorites, Bo Botan Ebi. I don't know if that was the shrimp that you had, but they're really sweet when they're raw, right? So yeah, it's like, yeah. It's a little snotty, but very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I like that. You've really transformed from a picky eater to, you know, a, a flavor explorer. So that's great. Yeah. I think once you realize it's not going to kill you, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You have a couple seconds of like, oh, that was not my favorite yeah. in your mouth. And then you know a little bit more about the world. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, I like to ask this of all of our guests um, as we wrap up. Do you have any recommendations on usually ask for a recipe, but maybe I'll just like ask, do you have a pairing that you would recommend that someone try or a certain beer and a certain cheese or like what should, yeah. what should we play around with now that we have some more knowledge about how to taste? Yeah. My two new things that I'm really excited about. Um, I would say like these lightly sparkling sakes, they're a little bit more expensive, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. they are, you should think of it like buying a wine. I know people think like, sakes should be cheap but if you think about it the same price as a wine it's the yeah. same price as a decently nice wine and they are so the bouquet on them are just so floral and fruity and just nice. really different because you don't have that grapiness of a wine it's coming from mm -hmm. rice right so it's very like effervescent I don't know lightly sparkling sakes I especially in the summer highly recommend oh nice and then my other one I don't know if you can see my collections back here of all my different bottles in the bar but um Trying different Amaros, which are these very bitter um, mm. aperitif spirits, but just doing them over soda, like a normal unflavored LaCroix or something like that, which nice. kind of breaks up the bitterness. Uh, really fun way to just discover new herbs and new flavors and uh, really refreshing. Again, it's rooftop yeah. season, so... I love the idea of putting Amaro with the sparkling water. What's your favorite Amaro? Mine's Amaro Lucano. I don't know if you've ever That's had good. that one from Southern Italy. Yeah, I think. I don't know if it's um, – I have a – St. Agrestis is from uh, Brooklyn is my favorite. It's a little bit uh -huh. sweet, but I think with the sparkling water, it really, you know, cuts that nice. sweetness completely. Um, but I've really been loving if you can get, like, the smaller bottles and just trying a bunch of different yeah. ones. So, yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So I know you've got um, a, an exciting book tour um, up ahead this uh, over the summer and into the fall. Where are some of the cities that you're going to be heading and where can we send our listeners to um, find out more? Yeah. So howtotastebook.com uh, has all the tour events. And we're really, since it's summer season, we're kind of hitting the beaches. We're doing the Jersey Shore, the Hamptons, Cape Cod, Portland, Maine, Boston, um, and then a bunch of places throughout Connecticut uh, from July through late August. So I would love to see anyone who's out there. Um, but then, yeah, How to Taste Book also has some profiles of different characters in the book, um, you know, more fun graphs and videos to check out. Uh, and then, of course, my Instagram, Drinks with Mandy. 
I'll be talking about this book for the next year, all the things that I, you know, I'm excited about. So um, that's another great place. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, foodies for all of you listening, definitely check out Mandy's book, head over to her Instagram. Um, she's just got a lot of really cool tips and tricks to help us all learn how to better appreciate and savor, um, the things that we get, have the opportunity to taste. So very cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Tasty adventures ahead, you know? There we go. <laughs> Tasty adventure. Right. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out. Thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth at Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. Um, I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in each week. If you'd like to see the video version of this podcast, you can head over to the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. I'll also have some additional show notes and info over on my newsletter at Nature's Pharmacy. That's at Substack, Nature's Pharmacy. Um, and you can also find all of our episodes. We've we've now got, oh gosh, over 150 episodes, more than 120,000 downloads, thanks to you guys, um, available on our website at foodiepharmacology.podbean.com. Um, and yeah, thanks for tuning in. Stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time. Thank you.